0: Good morning, church. Let's open our Bibles to First Peter, chapter three. We're going to be beginning about verse seventeen this morning. If you're visiting Christ Church, my name's Mark, and we're glad you're here. We're in this series called Building on Hope, which is looking at a letter that Paul, or excuse me, that Peter wrote to a group of early Christians who were being faced with the reality that following Jesus was not winning them many friends, and that it gave them a great hope but it was going to be a challenge to their existence. And so far in our study of this particular uh, letter that Peter wrote this summer, we've, we have realized that it, I want to remind you that every letter in the New Testament has a certain cadence to it. It has the theology established of who God is and what that means to us, and then how do we live in light of that knowledge. That's uh, f- pretty much the formula of most of the New Testament letters. Uh, Peter's is no different. He's told us who we are What Jesus has done for us, what opportunities lay before us, and now we're in that section of his letter where he's establishing for us how do we then live? What does life look like for those who follow Jesus and want to commit themselves to him? Over the last two weeks, he's told us what kind of people we're to be. We're to be a people of unity, of love, sympathy, compassion, and humility. We're to be a blessing to other people. And to be a blessing means we have to be others-focused. We have to be reaching out with those things like sympathy, compassion, and love, and doing it for the cause of unity. Last week, we talked about setting Jesus apart as Lord, and I asked you to consider some questions. What does our hope in Jesus look like in each of our lives? What's the evidence of it? If we're here, and this hope is not just wishful thinking, but it's confident expectation, then how do we exude that? How do we live that out? What, what kind of hope do we have inside each of us? Today we, we take a turn in what life looks like by taking the turn toward what happens when life doesn't always go the way we want it to. Or if I can phrase it this way, do we have a hope that will deliver us through suffering when times are hard? Let's read verses 17 and 18. Peter says it is better if it's God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ died for sins once for all. This is not an easy thing to hear, but Peter has told us, as as Paul has told us, as John alludes to in his writings, uh, that sometimes it is God's will that things don't go well for us. It It is okay with God's plan for us within his power that not everything is smooth sailing. Because God can take even our suffering and that God can use that suffering for something amazing, something phenomenally beautiful. God can take the worst moments of our lives and redeem them. And Peter's example of that is there are some times that we suffer and we know what this is. Sometimes we suffer because we've done something that deserves suffering. Let me give you a simple example, like around our house. Uh, there are times where people trip or bounce into something, or knock a lamp off of a table and it breaks. And that's a mistake. Those things happen. Then there are times we throw a football in the house when we're not supposed to, and we take a lamp out. The suffering for the football lamp is much different than the suffering for the accident lamp. Can I have an amen? You understand that. There is suffering in your life because you're clumsy and you make mistakes. And then there's the suffering that comes because we are sinful people who make choices that cost us things. Peter has already established that sometimes we suffer for our mistakes, and we deserve that. But sometimes we suffer for only doing good things, and that's hard. You're a good person. You try hard. You're generous. You contribute. You do all of these things, and you can't catch a break. And we raise our hands to the heaven, and we say to God, what's it going to take? Can a brother have a break? And we wonder about that suffering, and that's what Peter is addressing. That sometimes it is God's will that he makes something phenomenally beautiful out of our worst moments. Chapter 4, and hopefully if you had kept your Bibles open or your apps, you'll see it's not very far from where we are this morning. Chapter 4, verse 1, Peter wrote, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same attitude. Use the example of Jesus as our example. How do we respond when it doesn't always go the picture-perfect Walt Disney way we want it to? And then we allude to what uh, Paul would write to the church of Philippi when he explained what that attitude was. This is the attitude we're to arm ourselves with. He says, "'Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, "'who did not consider equality with God "'something to be grasped, but made himself nothing.'" Verse eight, "'He humbled himself and became obedient to death, "'even death on the cross.'" Peter's point to every one of us is we need to arm ourselves, we need to get ready, we need to place the attitude in our lives that when life doesn't go well, where will our hope be? Will it be in anger at a God who didn't make things smooth? Or will our hope be in a God who can make something beautiful even out of our worst moments? So get yourself ready. And I don't want to come across uh, to the church today as mean or upset, but we need to wake up to this reality. In the American church, we talk about if one day we might suffer. While today, throughout this world, people will go to meet Jesus because they chose death in Christ rather than living the lie. If you've not read your newspaper in the last 48 hours, it's amazing the evidence that's out there that people, in in parts of this world today, people's homes are being marked with certain letters on the house indicating that there are Christians in that home, and this day they will have to choose whether to live on this earth or die for the cause of Christ. This isn't a, uh, a preacher's illustration of a scene that might take place one out of a million times. It's happening in our world today. People live in countries today where if they profess faith in Jesus Christ, they either have to pay a tax to the government for protection, which the mafia is not even that good, or they face the sword. This is not like one in a million opportunities. This is happening across across our globe. And as a pastor, we must pray for the persecuted church. We must not talk about praying for the persecuted church. If you want a homework assignment, pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ throughout the world today who are having to choose to live in this world without Jesus or die for Jesus because it's happening. John Piper wrote something that just blew me up. He said, we Americans have invented names for places where it's not safe to talk about Jesus. We call them closed countries. So we have taken our false assumption that we should have safety And we've said there are some places in the world that we can't do church because it's not safe. Let us remember, nowhere in any of your scriptures does it say the church is safe. The church is always at risk. And to be a follower of Jesus is a life or death situation. Imagine doing evangelism in a context outside of America where you can't promise everybody that their marriage, their kids, and their jobs will go well if you follow Jesus. We've made Jesus the great placebo. Get a little bit of Jesus and everything will work out. And that's a lie. Because nowhere in Scripture does God promise that he's going to make everything work out. We were talking about this in the green room and pardon the abruptness of this illustration, but they told me to run with it. I'll blame them. You have to understand that God is preparing an army. And at no time do you prepare soldiers for a war, a spiritual war, and then promise them you'll never put them in a situation where they'll get hurt. Kingdom of heaven is a battle, a spiritual battle. And there will be casualties, but the beauty is that even casualties in the kingdom of heaven will be resurrected to new life in Christ. No matter what the world does to any of us. This is why in 1 Peter 4, 12, Peter says, Do not be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes upon you as though something strange were happening to you. This letter is written to Christians who have to make choices about whether or not they want to hold on to the things that matter. And then Peter gives us why this illustration helps us suffer. So when we do, when we arm ourselves with the same attitude of Jesus, what do we need to hold on to? I'm gonna give you four things this morning. The first is this, remember that Jesus suffered for a purpose. That Jesus suffered for a purpose. Now, you may sit here today and go, I knew that. No, I want you to ponder it with me. Consider this with me. Verse 18, for Christ died for sins once for all. Uh, Here's what I need you to remember. God will never ask you to suffer meaninglessly. God never will allow you to suffer just because he can. My father used to wear a ring on his right hand and had a, a stone in it. I think mom might have given it to him. And Every now and then, to be a funny guy, my dad would turn that ring around so the stone was on the inside of his hand and reach down in church and pop us upside the head, and it hurt. I remember one time Scott and I were having a good day, That's my second oldest brother, and we hung out together, and we were sitting there, and we weren't too noisy, and we were paying attention, and my dad reached down and thumped both of us, and I was like, why in the world did you do that? And he goes, because you probably did something I never saw. (laughs) And he was right. God doesn't do that. God doesn't just allow you to suffer because he can, because he's God, and you ought to just suck it up and like it. Here's the good news. That's not our God. But if it's God's will that we suffer, we need to remember there's a reason behind it. Don't lose the reason, there's a purpose. And he gives us the example of Jesus who died that he might take away sins. That's why Paul would write to that same church of Philippi Oh, that I might know him in the fellowship of his suffering and be conformed to his death. Paul said, I I don't want to quit. I don't want to abandon God every time it gets tough. I want to live like Jesus did. I want to suffer for the reasons that God puts in my life so that others might be one because of what I suffer. And look, at his example is still being spoken about today. It's the beauty of it. And Jesus didn't pull any punches. In Mark chapter 8, Jesus is quoted as saying, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The cross was a tool of persecution. That's why Jesus would also say, blessed are those who are persecuted for my namesake. You see, we should not be surprised, even though we are, that God never promises to make our lives easy and comfortable. And there are preachers out there that are saying every Sunday to thousands of people, God wants you to be healthy and wealthy and wise. I don't find those verses. I want to hear the preacher preach through First Peter. Because you can't promise that everything's going to go slick and clean for everybody when you read the entire Bible. What you can understand is God will be with you no matter what you go through. And when he allows you to suffer, there's a purpose behind it. So why would anybody become a Christian? This is a question I wrote myself this week. Why would anybody be a believer if you suffered for doing the right thing? And here's my conclusion. Suffering brings about more value than what is taken from us in our suffering. Why would God let us suffer and have hard times? Because what he gives us through those hard times is of much greater value than what we lose in those hard times. And that becomes a matter of faith. And that's the difference between believing in God and having a relationship with God that gets you through that. Peter says, For Christ died for sins once for all. His son suffered and had less than a perfect valued life. Why? The righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. And Peter walks through this theology so simply. Christ died for sins. You see, the greatest need for every one of us is not the need to live a long life on this earth safe and comfortable. You would, you would think by watching television and reading magazines and looking at what we're told that All of us truly, deep down, the most important need is to be well-fed, to have as many material possessions as we want to be well-thought-of. Yet that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says your greatest need is how to overcome the separation from God we have because of sin. And if we turn off the noise of the world, we'll all find that to be true. That deep down inside, the greatest need of every human being is to be loved, to be valued, and to be cherished. And there is nothing in this world that can meet that need but God himself. Isaiah chapter 59, the Old Testament prophet said, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Why did Jesus suffer? He suffered for sins. He didn't suffer so we'd become competent and comfortable. He suffered because our greatest need was to bridge the void, the gap between us and our Father that we caused. It wasn't an accidental bumping the lamp off the table. We threw at it when we were told not to. And the damage was horrendous. And it says, the just for the unjust, that Jesus died being perfect. In other words, Jesus suffered having done nothing wrong, so that those who had done wrong will not suffer any more than they can stand. And he did this so he could bring us to God. So when we look at why would God let our lives seemingly fall apart, it's because he's doing something that we can't see, and it's going to be for our good, that, God causes good for all those who are called according to his purpose. He brings it all together. So how does this help us suffer? How does this little theology lesson help us suffer? One of the temptations in suffering is to make us think that God has forsaken us. When people have hard times, I've done it too. I'm not above that at all. When things don't go my way or I pray for something and I can't get the answer I think I need and I work really hard and I can't catch a break and I just wonder, God, I'm on your side for crying out loud. I just wonder what in the world you say you love me can I have a little love can a brother catch a break and I say that I'm a preacher for crying out loud the truth is one of the temptations that I have when I suffer is to wonder if God's forsaken us and here's what I've concluded suffering is not a sign that God has forsaken us it's a sign the world has because what are we lamenting we're lamenting that we don't have enough money or we, we didn't get the promotion we wanted or we don't have enough health or we've lost someone we love as if God brought those things about. And if you measure where those things come from, they all come from our choices here on this earth that are temporary. And you say, my business isn't going well and I'm not getting what I think I need to prove who I am. You're relying on some sustenance or, or form of support for who you are that isn't God. Jesus cried out to his father in the garden, they're about to kill me. Is there a better way than this way? And God did not answer him. And so Jesus submitted to his father. Did Jesus ever cry out and say, could a brother catch a break? Absolutely not. He said, not my will, but yours be done. See, suffering is not a sign that God's forsaken us. It's only proof that the world will. And then he goes on to verses 18, second half of verse 18 and following. Jesus was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom he also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. What? What in the world is he talking about? Can I be honest? I'm going to stand up here and tell you, I read that this week and thought, I'm going to be sick on Sunday. That is one of the weirdest passages written in the New Testament. So let me give you some little hermeneutical understanding here. That's a fancy word to say, how do you study the sacred text? How do you look into it? Let me tell you this. What you need to understand is, when Peter wrote this, because it has little explanation to it, there would have been an understanding from his original audience. This would have been an illustration they would have picked up. Okay? So granted into that. We're the ones who are behind the times, not them. And there's a lot of debate. I spent a lot of time, I'm telling you probably more on this than I have in a long time since maybe the Revelation series, on studying the different views of this text. And there's a lot of debate as to what it means and, and, you know, who did he speak to, when did he do it, what did he say, those are all great questions. What We have to remember, why did Peter write this letter? To remind believers to hold on to hope in Jesus, not in themselves. So Peter uses an example here about how Jesus died for sins and upon dying for our sins and restoring us back to God through the power of the cross and the atoning blood because of that it then says that when he was put to death in the body but made alive in the spirit your preacher tends to believe that this means after the resurrection being made alive in the spirit upon his death 3 days later after the resurrection in that 40 day period of time i believe that peter or that jesus went and he spoke to those imprisoned without faith Luke 19, in a parable Jesus tells about the rich man and Lazarus, uh, identifies two places where people go when they die. Now, maybe these are actual places, or it's just a word picture, but walk with me through this. There's a place called Hades. Hades is not hell. Hades is a place where those without faith go upon death to await the judgment for their sins. And then there's a place called paradise. Paradise is a place where those who have lived by faith upon death go to be in the presence of the Lord, Paul says. Paul says. Some of you are going, can we move on? Just give me a minute. So you have Hades, don't want to be there. Paradise, be happy to be there. And there's a judgment for both. A judgment of the sin of those in Hades and a judgment of reward. Believe it or not, God's going to judge us and reward us for being followers by faith. And these are the two places. And it says that Jesus went and spoke to the prisoners that he went to those that denied the power of God in their lives and he announced to them that everything God ever promised, that they thought they were thwarting, that everything that was to be found in God is found in Jesus and he proclaimed himself the resurrected Lord and all authority and all power was restored to him. In other words, he's the man. And upon his resurrection, he announced to all the spiritual authorities in prison, your days are numbered. And that's what the book of Revelation says, that when he returns, they're gone. Now, here's the good news. Why would Peter tell that to a group of Christians struggling for their faith? Because you need to know this. There is no spiritual power over you if the Holy Spirit is in you. Church, that's significant. There's a lot of Christians who wonder, could I be possessed by a demon? Not if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you can't. There's no demonic power greater than the power of Jesus to release you. And when Jesus showed up to Satan, he said, I'm back, it was all over. And this is the message that Peter wants us to know. So here's the point. God has provided us a victory through the suffering Savior. Not only did Jesus suffer for a reason, but his suffering produced all of our victory So when the world causes us to suffer, we have nothing to fear. Jesus is greater. Jesus is better. Jesus is more powerful. There is no power greater than His. So even when the world threatens to take our life, we know the greatness of Jesus Christ, and we know it is better to obey Him and suffer temporarily than it is to disobey Him and suffer eternally. Because suffering... Notice that. Here's your two options. Suffer now and live, or never suffer and die and suffer. So those trying to avoid suffering, it's not optional. It's a part of living in a broken world. But it's only momentarily if you're a believer in Christ. And then he continues, verses 20 through 22. In the ark of Noah, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, powers, and submission to him. What's the point? That deliverance will not be received by all. This is the point Peter's making. That God has provided a means through Jesus Christ. And to suffer for the kingdom is because the work has been done that it's worth suffering for because the power of Jesus is established. And then he gives us an example that not everybody will seize that moment. And he uses Noah's ark. And he uses the example of the, the boat that eight people entered into. If God had promised a generation that he was going to bring the flood. They did not pay attention. Eight people got in the boat and were saved. And then Peter equates that to the promise. But let's back up a second. Let me ask you a couple of questions. I need you to play along, so warm up. Are you ready? Okay, let's try that again. Warm up. Are you ready? There you are. Good. I thought your mics were off. Okay, so here we go. Let me ask you a couple of questions. There's some trick questions here, so I know some of you aren't going to answer anyway, but don't worry about being wrong. Just worry about being asleep. When the flood came, did the ark save Noah and his family? Let's try again. Did the ark save Noah and his family? No. God saved Noah and his family. Now, here's the question. This one isn't trick. How did God save Noah and his family? The ark. Now, we're, now we've got our theology straight. Because unfortunately, in a church this large, there are people with differing theological backgrounds. And when you come into a church like this, and I mentioned baptism, some of you are going, I knew it. He's going to go off on baptism. Uh, no, I'm not. But I'm not going to deny that it's scriptural. And I'm not going to deny that it's significant. It's not an addendum. It's, it's powerful. Now, you could say to Noah, well, could God have saved Noah outside of an ark? Absolutely. He's God. He created the world. He brought the flood. He could have just held him up in the air for, four, or for an entire year. I don't know. But what did he ask him to do? Participate in the salvation by building the boat. And then, the problem we all have a problem with is, then he asks them to do this ridiculously, r- incredibly hard thing to do. Get in the boat. So when people say, what, Oh, baptism doesn't save you. No, baptism doesn't save you. Jesus Christ saves you. But you've got to get in the boat. Because you're going to drown if you stand outside criticizing the need for a boat. <laughs> get in the boat. Because the boat's going to take you through the water to the other side, and when the waters subside, you're going to be alive because God gave you a means by which he could deliver you. And Peter says, that's baptism. Now, some of you are going, well, you know, but but," no, 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 listen. There's a thousand things that go into building the boat. Every one of them is important. Every direction that God gave Noah to do, he did. And then he had a boat. And he got in a boat. And he got out of the boat, and he was alive. So when I believe in Jesus, and by his blood on the cross, I'm saved, and my faith in Jesus Christ, when he tells me, build a boat, church, what should I do? And when he tells me to get in the boat, what should we do? If you want to not drown, get in the boat. So why do we do all these things in church? Why is it important to gather together and pray together and serve one another and be baptized and pray and give and sacrifice? It's because it's building the boat that will deliver us the way God wants to deliver us. But the truth is, not everyone gets in the boat. Because if they do, then they might have to admit maybe what they thought was wrong. See, I'm here to tell you, you're not gonna be saved because you're baptized. You're gonna be saved because Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Get in a boat and let him wash you clean. It's not a removal of dirt from the flesh, Peter says, but it is a clear conscience before God. You did what he asked you to do. You responded. As we say around here, people say to me always, and this happens so much, I, I don't think I have to be baptized. You're absolutely right. You get to. And that's the difference between responding by faith and living a legalistic life. You don't have to be baptized. You get to be baptized. I didn't have to marry Heather. I got to. And I didn't have to marry Jesus. I got to. And I wasn't turning down that proposal for anything. And whatever he wanted me to do, I'm willing to do it because I need him. And he wants to deliver me. You see, it's no disadvantage to be in a small rejected minority when you know who's asking you to be. And this brings us to my last point today. What is this... How do we live this out? How do we suffer? How does baptism, how does that imagery help me suffer? Because if God wants to deliver me even through the waters of suffering, remember Jesus said to his disciples, will you undergo the baptism I undergo? And they said, yeah. And he said, that'll be God's choice for you, God's will. Sometimes suffering is even seen as a baptism. To endure and to respond. But the last point is to prepare your hearts to set Jesus apart. I want to remind you of chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourself also with the same attitude. What has the Lord asked of you? And Jesus said, not my will, but yours be done. And then it ends with this great, powerful moment in chapter 3, verse 22. Jesus is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven, after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him. When Jesus walked through the resurrection, he announced to all the spiritual realm, I'm back. The sins of the world have been paid for. I have fulfilled every prophecy. I am the Messiah. I'm your worst nightmare. And those who understood who he was submit themselves to him. But he's not our worst nightmare, is he? He's our means of delivery. He's the lover of our souls. He's the one who, even when life is hard, is the only one we can count on the only one to sustain us? You see, it's easy today what we need to do. There are some in this room who have never set Jesus apart, everything else. You're saving yourself by being good, being kind, trying harder, but that doesn't bridge your greatest need, your sin's gap. The only way that you can be drawn close to God is for the blood of Jesus Christ to be poured over you so your sins are washed away white as snow, so that you can walk in newness of life. That's the only way this works. And it's not up to vote. It's up to the one who called us to life. He's calling us to live again. And so for some of us, we have to set Jesus Christ apart as Lord. Around this room are four tables with lamps lit on them so you know where to go. And there will be people going to these tables in just a moment to meet with you. Some of you have questions. We're not trying to get you to come up and all of a sudden make a big decision instantaneously. The Bible says count the costs. It's an important decision. Measure it out. It's a marriage between you and God for eternity. But some of us have delayed so long. We're like, I I just don't know. You better figure it out. Because the floodwaters are coming. You need to get in a boat. And for others of us, we got off the boat. Because it got rocky. Because it stormed for one year. And it was hard. Get, Get back in the boat trust the one who says in your suffering I will never let you suffer for no reason I'll only let you suffer for a purpose greater than yourself and what you will have lost in your suffering will be made up for by what you gain in your suffering and that's where our faith in Jesus Christ is most real so this morning is he or is he not the Lord of all things that's what we get to decide That's where we place our belief, because if he is, we live and thrive even in our worst moments. Let's stand together and sing.